Over the last few weeks, I've been spending a lot of time in a dusty corner of the closet in Justin's office. I've been there on purpose. It's where we keep a lot of the archival materials of the church. There are binders there of board minutes and liberal articles and old sermons. And I've been digging in to the year 1993 in particular. I've been looking into the history of that year and our church in particular because that's the year when this congregation made the move from our old building at 50th and Girard to this building here at 3400 DuPont. It was absolutely a leap of faith for the congregation to make this move, to acknowledge the growth and the health that we were experiencing and to stretch, moving from a familiar home that didn't quite fit anymore into a new building that at the time felt disconcertingly large. This church stretched then because you knew we had a saving message of love that could heal and inspire lives that had been doing so for generations. You stretched because you wanted to make room, not just for yourselves alone, but for those you hadn't met yet, for times many of you would not live to see. Fast forward more than 20 years and here we are again, looking ahead, making room, not just for ourselves alone, but for those we haven't yet met for times many of us will not live to see. We're making plans to renovate and expand our building to better meet the needs of our church community and our larger community. And we are living, just as we did many years ago, into our universalist spirit of love and hope and the wide welcome that we are called to offer by our faith. Now, I've been digging into those sermons from 1993, not just because I like to geek out on church history, which I do, and not just because it's fascinating to get to know this place and the people and the stories that preceded my time here. I'm digging into those old sermons and stories because I am convinced that the past has lessons to teach us. The sermon that I've been focusing on in particular this week comes from January 3rd of 1993. It was given by co-minister Reverend Susan Milner and it was titled, On Seeing Signs. I had to laugh when I picked it up because partway through the sermon, Reverend Susan starts quoting Rabbi Edwin Friedman and his book, Generation to Generation. Now, if you're not a clergy person, you may not have read this book, but it's standard practice for us. And it talks about all the ways that patterns and habits of behavior get passed down from one generation to the next when we don't even know that we're doing it. And I was laughing because here's the sermon sitting next to me. And guess what book I'd pulled out to help me with this sermon, Generation to Generation. There we were. The pattern was alive right in front of me. So in this sermon, Reverend Susan describes what it felt like to drive up to the church building on 50th and Girard on Christmas 1992 and to see the sign there that read, for sale, we are grow growing and moving uptown. It was startling, she said. Even though she knew that the moment was coming, even though she'd worked hard on it right alongside many of you, still seeing the sign brought it all home and it brought her right into the feelings that go with change. The worry, the fear, the uncertainty, the excitement, the possibility. She says she saw that sign and noticed how it made her feel and she knew it was time for some reassurance for the congregation. She reassured the congregation at that time by essentially saying that the basic pattern of who we are, of what is important to us, it's unlikely to change whatever physical space we're in. For most people, she said, a fundamental change in personality or identity is unlikely for anyone 30 years or older. 
We can, of course, change direction and fine-tune ourselves, she said. And I'd add that I do believe major change is possible for us if we're willing to put in a whole lot of concerted effort over time. But basically, she, she said, and I agree, that we are who we are at our core. And no matter where we are living and whatever space we are in, we are still who we are. There are through lines, there are patterns, there's a thread that we hold on to. There's an essence of who we are that remains the same even as things change around us. This is true not only for individuals but for congregations, Reverend Susan went on to tell our church. And this is where Rabbi Friedman's book came in. She said that like families or individuals, congregations tend to stay basically the same, passing their traits on from one generation of members to the next, no matter how many new faces are incorporated. Intentional change is possible, but it takes a whole lot of intention and effort for a congregation to change who it is. If Rabbi Friedman were consulting with us, she said back in 1993, he would probably say that much of what makes us who we are as First Universalist Church our theology, the way we reach out into the community, how we relate to one another, all of these will remain the same, no matter what building we live in. Reading through this sermon this week, I was reminded of one of the sources of trust I hold on to, one of the maxims, if you will, that I lean on. This saying goes like this. It says, past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. In essence, how a person or an institution has behaved in the past is how it will behave in the future. This is something we can mostly rely on. We are who we are for good or for bad, and this is almost always true, unless the person or institution undergoes some massive change, unless they decide that they're going to do the hard work of taking an honest look at themselves and their situation and then actively making changes that last over time. We are who we are. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Now, personally, I've found myself leaning on this phrase a whole lot over the last year and a bit. When our house caught on fire last year and everything about my life and my family's life was thrust into chaos, I often found myself wondering and worrying, were we ever going to go back home? Was life ever going to feel predictable and safe and normal again? Were my children going to be scarred forever by this? Was their family going to somehow fall apart from the stress of all of it? The therapist that I saw during that time kept repeating to me, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, Jen. You've always come through and thrived before, even when really hard things have happened. The familiar, comforting patterns of the everyday life that you have created will return, she'd say to me. They always have. The family and the way of being and the love that you have built are all still there, even when the oh-so-important outside shell of your home is not. You are okay. You are who you are, no matter what is going on around you. You can trust this, she'd say. I found myself clinging to these words last year, trusting that she believed them even when I didn't. And I knew somewhere deep inside that they were true, because I've seen them live out not only in my life, but in yours as well. I've seen both me and you lean in and live the way that the poets talked about this morning. I've seen the way that the stubborn, persistent heart keeps on beating even when the pain seems too much to bear. 
I've seen the way that we keep leaning toward love like plants leaning toward light. I've held the thread that Kathy talked about in the words of William Stafford, the thread that goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. That thread that you hold on to, even when others can't see it, that thread that when you're holding on to it, you can't get lost. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. This is one of the things that I trust, and I have to admit I find this truth both comforting on the one hand and deeply troubling on the other. I find it troubling because there are so many patterns of behavior in myself and others in our communities and our country that I really would like to be able to change with just the flip of a switch. And yet I know it doesn't work that way. These patterns are also often pervasive and wound in tight with how we are and who we are. Perhaps you remember the phrase that I shared a few weeks back, the one that comes from the author and activist Adrienne Marie Brown. Things are not getting worse, she said. They are getting uncovered. We must hold each other close and continue to pull back the veil. This week, there have been so many hard truths to take in. The shooting death of 25 people in a small church in Texas. The death of a 14-year-old native boy killed on the Bad River Reservation by a sheriff's deputy. The ongoing revelations of sexual assault by actors and comedians and politicians and more. There have been hard truths to see and to bear, reasons to hold each other close as the veil is pulled back and we learn again to take an honest look at who we are, who our community is, who our country is. This week on Monday when I got into church, I found myself looking for a moment of meditation and reflection, so I opened up a new meditation manual from the Unitarian Universalist Association full of beautiful prayers and writings, and I cracked it open and it fell to a page called After the Shootings. There was a prayer in there with that title. I looked at it and I thought, it's become so predictable now. We know this will happen again, that there it is in our prayer book, so that in a moment when I need it, it's already been written for me. This is not how things should be. There are patterns that we must see and we must know, and we must actively commit to stopping with all of the energy and stubborn persistence of our beating hearts that we can muster. And the truth is, right alongside all of those difficult things, all of those hard patterns that we are seeing, it is true, too, that when we keep our eyes open, there are other patterns, patterns that give me great hope when we take an honest look at ourselves and our world. This week, we got to see the self-proclaimed homophobe-in-chief, Virginia State Delegate Bob Marshall, defeated in his, in his election by Danica Rome, a transgender woman. Yes. We got to see right here in our own Minneapolis, two transgender people of color elected to the Minneapolis City Council. We have to let these things fill us up so we can continue to push back against the hate-filled, short-sighted, environment-destroying, love-denying policies and practices of our administration. We have to see the patterns that we are living within, the good ones and the hard ones. I know for me that when I look at the patterns of our nation, there are ones that I hope we hold onto and ones that I hope we reject. 
On the one hand, for many people in this country, there is a hopeful spirit still, a sense of opportunity and freedom, an ability for many to live as they are without hiding. There are ideals that the country was founded upon that we are still struggling to live into, and I hope we hold on to those. On the other hand, there are patterns that are still waiting to be seen in their fullness by all of us, patterns that harm us all. Let me offer up one example. In his book titled, We Were Eight Years in Power, An American Tragedy, Ta-Nehisi Coates offers these reflections on last year's presidential election, but he starts first by describing the way that he and I think many of us felt several years earlier. He writes, it's not so much that I logically reasoned out that Obama's election would author in a post-racist age, he says, but it seemed possible then that white supremacy, the scourge of American history, might well be banished in my lifetime. In those days, I imagined racism as a kind of a tumor that could be isolated and removed from the body of America, not as a pervasive system, both native and essential to that body. From that perspective, it seemed possible that the success of one man really could alter history or even end it. The country is trying to reach for the best part of itself, Coates remembers Bob Moses, the former SNCC leader and civil rights revolutionary, saying when Obama was elected, the country is trying to reach for the best part of itself. Eight years later, Coates takes a look back. He pulls the veil back further, digging deep into our country's history, examining the patterns that keep on creating the future. He goes all the way back to the time of the Civil War, a war whose 150th anniversary we marked during Obama's presidency, a war that was declared for the express purpose of expanding African slavery in America. Coates looks back and he sees that even after the war was done, the guiding pattern of white supremacy lived on through lynchings and Jim Crow laws, through calculated incarceration of people of color and the ongoing marginalization of indigenous peoples. Coach tracks that white supremacy lived on long after the Civil War, and that even though many in our country wanted and wanted to believe that it was different, it turns out that racism and white supremacy were never an isolated tumor that could be excised and removed, but instead that they form a pervasive system both native and essential to the body of our country. In pulling back the veil and taking an honest look, Coates tells us that the prevailing theory about racism in our country is this, that emancipation that occurred at the time of the Civil War and that the Civil Rights Movement were redemptive, that a fraught and still incomplete resolution of the, they were a fraught and still incomplete resolution of the accidental hypocrisy of a nation founded by slaveholders extolling a gospel of freedom, that racism was an accidental hypocrisy. When you hold on to this as a prevailing idea of what racism and white supremacy is like in our country, he says, you miss the fact that white supremacy has continued to exist after the civil rights movement, even after the election of our first black president. He says, if there's any hope of changing this pervasive and evil pattern, we have to live with our eyes wide open, learning and relearning our country's history and the implications of those patterns for the future. Here at church, we are doing the hard work of taking an honest look at who we are and how we do things. Your board of trustees has established a change team, a group of congregants who are charged to examine everything about this place, 
from our bylaws to our policies and procedures and the ways that we are with one another in our day-to-day -day interactions to see where we might be perpetuating a culture of white supremacy. This change team is committed to taking an honest look at who we are and how we are so that the cultural waters of white supremacy that we swim within don't have to dictate our future. We know that history so often repeats itself, that there are patterns that exist for good or for bad, patterns to be leaned on for comfort, and patterns that need to be challenged for change. And the thing is, we know too, that unless we live with eyes and hearts wide open, willing to pull back the veil even farther while holding each other close, these patterns will go on and on, almost as if they're on their own will and power. There are so many signs from our past, so many things in the history of this community we can trust, Reverend Milner said so many years ago. We were born in the womb of a deeply loving heritage, the universalist heritage which trusted life enough and loved people enough to insist that God is love, love incarnated in our very selves. There are some essential characteristics of this place, Reverend Milner told us that we are a community grounded in love that reaches beyond its walls, that we are a community that tends the spirit, growing and stretching and living into the wide welcome that our heritage demands of us. This is who we have been as First Universalist Church, and this is who we will continue to be in the future. So I ask us, where is it in our own lives that we might need to summon our courage and take an honest look where is it in the life of our congregation and our community and our country that we need to continue to pull back the veil on patterns that drive us and perhaps even predict our future? Which patterns are there that give us comfort and which patterns are calling for change? Where is it that you might bring the stubborn persistence of your beating heart to bear in the creation of a better world? May we take courage and comfort from those patterns that give us hope, and may we commit again to moving beyond thoughts and prayers and wishful thinking and into the discomfort of an honest look and all of the action that we can bear to take. May it be so, and amen.